You're listening to the Steve Pinto Podcast, a podcast dedicated to teaching God's Word and how we can apply it to our lives in this crazy world we're living in. Oh, yeah. For the next two weeks, I want to speak to you about a short series that I've entitled The Reason for God. The Reason for God. And I want to encourage you to engage both your mind and your heart when it comes to God. Last week we talked about tuning into the voice of God. you remember that? Well, I want to encourage you to engage your mind and your heart. Look, I grew up in church, in a Pentecostal church, and we did a very good job of teaching the next generation how to feel God. In churches, we're really good at teaching the church how to experience God. But there's other churches that do a really good job of teaching people how to think about God, how to reason about God, how to logically engage God. But rarely do we see churches that are really good at holistic theology. That is to say, the engagement of both the mind and the heart. See, it's not one or the other. It's both and. Seeking God and knowing God and having a relationship with God requires both the mind and the heart. It requires both a passionate pursuit with our emotions, but also a depth of engagement with our mind. Now, I spend most of my weeks around young adults. I spend most of the week around college-age students who are in university or in college. And what I have found myself, what I, what I have found is that as I engage with a lot of these young people, they are either disoriented in terms of their Christian walk and their walk with Christ, or they are engaged in some sort of deconstruction in their lives. They're either, again, uh, in a disorientation or a deconstruction of their faith. And I, and I have found that those who are disoriented are those who have been taught how to feel God but not think about God. And then what I have found is that those who are in a season of what they call deconstruction is they, are, they have been taught to think but not how to feel. Look, when I read the Bible, both are needed. In our pursuit of God, we need both mind and we need heart. Now, the reality is that we're all different, aren't we? If we were to overgeneralize, again, overgeneralize, I would say that there are thinkers among us and that there are feelers among us. Some of us tend to be more emotional and there's some of us who tend to be much more reasonable, right? And, and both of them have bridges and both of them have challenges to our faith. Both of them are going to have a lot of stuff that are going to help you out in your Christian walk. But a lot of those engagements are also going to create a lot of obstacles to your belief. Now, if you are the emotionally based, you see the world and you make decisions based on how you feel. See, the emotionally based, the hearts, the people who are led by their heart, they generally say, well... I feel that, 
That's how they start their conversations sometimes. Well, I feel that that's not right. Well, I feel that we shouldn't do that. And uh, those who are emotionally based, uh, it tends, uh, th- there's a tendency for your uh, memories to have huge value in your life. Memories are very important to you. And sometimes you dwell too much on your past because you are emotionally based. But at the same time, you're so careful to not hurt people's feelings. And this is good. You show a lot of empathy. But at the same time, you can be easily hurt. You feel that other people are not showing as much empathy as you are. And for those who are emotionally based, happiness is the highest priority of your life. I mean, you could be poor, but if you're happy, you're good, right? If you feel good, then life is good. And you tend to be compulsive. You know, if you're super happy, you buy a lot of stuff. But if you're sad, you don't eat, you don't drink, and you don't buy anything, right? Uh, the emotionally based are also people who dwell in people's comments. They, they read too much into what somebody said. Somebody, say, somebody said, hey, hello, good morning. Ooh, I wonder what they meant by good morning. Because <laughs> emotionally based tend to uh, be uh, very uh, in touch with their emotions, with their feelings. And they have a sense in which they can harbor bitterness and offenses. While at the same time they can show so much empathy and love towards others. And, and I think that the greatest thing that the devil can do for feelers is, to, is not to get them to lose their faith, but to get them to get hurt. See, feelers, feelers stop coming to church because someone didn't say hi to them. Feelers stop coming to church because nobody gave them a call. Nobody shot them a text or, uh, uh, or wrote an email to them. Now, there's feelers, but then there's also those who are thinkers, who engage the mind. And generally, those who are thinkers, they try to put those who are emotionally based down. And thinkers tend to say, or start a conversation, or respond by saying, I think that. I think that that is incorrect. I think that that is right or wrong. See, feelers say, I think that. Thinkers say, I think that. Now, thinkers, they don't tend to dwell on people's emotions. They don't think about uh, the past very much, but they do think a lot about the future. To them, uh, they don't care about people's feelings. You know, truth don't care about people's feelings. So who cares if you get hurt by what I say? And so uh, there are thinkers, and then there are feelers. And what I want to do in the next two weeks, both today and next week, is get you to uh, get in touch with uh, your weakness and your strengths in this area. And I, there's some of us who need to increase the feeling, and there's some of us who need to increase the thinking in our pursuit of God. In your Bibles, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, there the Apostle Paul encourages us to have the same mind as Christ. The same what? Mind as Christ. To humble himself, who being uh, himself God, he humbled himself to be a servant. And that he died a servant's death on the cross. And then, so Paul tells us in Philippians, have that same mindset that Christ had. So if we're going to be like Christ, 
we have to think like Christ did. That's what it says in my Bible. Uh, when I read the English Standard Version of the Bible, it says to have the same mindset as Christ in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Now, here's the cool thing about being bilingual. I'm bilingual. I speak Spanish as well. I read the Bible in both Spanish and English. And here's an interesting fact. When I read Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 in Spanish, it tells me that I need to have the same feeling as Christ. In that same passage, it says, Tengan este mismo sentir. Everybody say sentir. It's feeling. See, it's the same verse. But in the English translation, it says, you have to have the same mind as Christ. But then in the Spanish translation, it says you have to have the same feeling as Christ. What is going on? Right? Now, the cool thing is that the Bible is not written in English originally or Spanish originally. This passage was written in the Greek. And when we look at the original Greek, it tells us that we should have the same forneo as Christ. Forneo as Christ. That is the same, uh, uh, the same way that he judged the world. The same way that he discerned the world. The same way that he felt about the world. And you see, you see how these translations can, can uh, transcend experience? It can change an entire continent in their pursuit of God. You can have people reading the Bible in Spanish, like in Central America and South America, and their religious emphasis is going to be what? Experience. Emotions. Because we've taught them that to be like Christ, they have to feel what Christ felt. But then you have maybe more an Americanized, Western, Western mindset, like in America or Europe, and their pursuit of Christ is all what? Simply rational or logical or academic. But their hearts are far away from God. And so what we see here is just the importance of not one or the other or an imbalance of one or the other. But what the Bible is really calling us to is to love God with all of our mind and with all of our heart. It's not one or it's not the other. And so this dynamic, I think, is so important for us who live here in, in, in Southern California, where we can really understand the scriptures and then pursue God with a more of a holistic theological approach where we're, uh, where we're seeking God not only with our heart or not only with our mind, but with both. And so I want to help you to engage God with your mind this morning. Can we do that? I want to help you to think about God. Why is it that we need God, right? The beautiful thing about Christianity is that it not only provides for us a way of salvation, but it provides for us a way of understanding the world. It doesn't only, the, the scriptures not only teach us about how we can be saved, but it teaches us true human history. It teaches us the reality of origins, the beginning. It teaches us the reality of meaning. Why are we here on earth? It teaches us the reality of morality. How do we determine what's right and wrong? And it teaches us the reality of what's going to happen uh, when we die. The destiny of all human beings. And so when we look at scripture, we are able to better uh, gauge the world in which we're in and get a better understanding of what is happening. And um, 
in Acts chapter 17, in Acts chapter 17, in fact, if you have your Bible, I want you to open up there. Is it okay if we read the Bible in church? Is it okay if we read the Bible in church? All right, so if you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, I want to read to you there an engagement that the Apostle Paul had with some Athenians. This is during his second missionary trip here. And as the Apostle Paul goes, goes to, through Thessalonica, Berea, and now he's in Athens, uh, I want you to see how he engages uh, an academic um, an ac- a- academic audience, if you will, with the gospel. And this is where we, we're going to be centering on today and next Sunday. Um, so if you have your Bibles, open them. We're going to read it. I want to read a passage for you here uh, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. So Acts 17, verse 16, it says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. In your Bibles, just circle that word distressed. He was what? Distressed. Notice the Apostle Paul's feeling for his culture. I challenged you with this last week. When you look at culture around, do you feel like uh, you feel jealous? Like you want to participate? Like you would want to be part of it? Or when you look at culture, do you feel distressed? Do you feel uh, brokenhearted for how they are so lost? They are blinded in their understanding of life in the world and salvation. And so notice that as the Apostle Paul enters Athens, he's what? Greatly distressed to see that the city is full of idols. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So notice that the Apostle Paul is really good at engaging people both in the synagogue and in the marketplace. You see that in, in that verse, in verse 17? He says he reasoned with them. That means he had a conversation with them. He's, he's engaging them. He's trying to convince them that his way is right. Um, so notice that he reasons. He reasons with them. Both in the synagogue, the religious circle, but then also in the marketplace, which is more of out there in the business world, in culture itself. So notice that the Apostle Paul engages them both in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Then verse 18, and a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So notice now, the apostle Paul is preaching the gospel. He's preaching Jesus and he's preaching the resurrection. But these concepts are very foreign to these Athenian philosophers. They're like, what the heck is Jesus and what the heck is resurrection? These concepts are very foreign to us. We don't understand this. He is just a babbler. That's what they say. He's just babbling about some foreign gods, right? And then he continues now in verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus. That is... Uh, the translation of that is Mars Hill. So uh, th- this was a place, it says there, where, uh, where they said to him, May we know that uh, what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Verse 20. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Verse 21. Notice this. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That sounds like social media to me. 
That sounds like social media to me. They just spent all day just talking about the latest ideas. Nobody, nobody has solutions. Everybody's just talking and commenting, right? Everybody's just ju- jumping into the comment section. That's what that verse is saying right there. And then in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. What? You can worship and be ignorant of what you're worshiping? Absolutely. And then notice verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And then from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being uh, is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, by resurrecting him from the dead. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, among them was Dionysus, uh, Dionysus, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Isn't that crazy? That's a crazy story there. That's a crazy sermon. In fact, what I just read to you is the only sermon that we have of the Apostle Paul given entirely to an unchurched audience. To people who are not believers. And I want you to think about this. I want you to go think in your mind about Acts chapter 2, for example. In Acts chapter 2, you have the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down um, and the church explodes into being. And there were people from all over the world that had traveled into Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast or the Pentecost celebration. There were Jews from all over the world who had attended there. And you remember that after the Holy Spirit was poured out over the disciples there in the upper room, about 120 of them, that when people heard them speaking in tongues... When they heard him speaking in tongues, they wondered, they wondered what, what is it that's happening here? And then Peter, in that sense, it, it, back in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he preaches a, a gospel message based on the Old Testament and the prophet Joel. He basically says, what's happening here is what the Bible says concerning the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God said this in the book of Joel. He prophesied it. I'm going to pour out my spirit over all flesh. Um, and this is the birth of the church, essentially, that Peter tells them. 
And then from that moment, everybody goes back to their own countries and the gospel begins to spread. Now, I want you to notice something. Back in Acts chapter 2 there with the, with the apostle Peter, he preached about a prophet. He preached about the law. He preached about God. He preached uh, all of these religious concepts that he never had to define. You're with me this morning. He's preaching about a prophet. And people say, oh yeah, we know what you're talking about. He said, prophet Joel. Oh yeah, of course, he's in our Bibles. We understand. God is going to pour out his spirit. All right, those are religious concepts we understand. God, he's the God, Yahweh from the Old Testament. Got it. He's the creator. Okay, got it. He's the one. He's doing all this. See, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches, everybody understood the religious concepts that he was preaching about. Now, I'll come back to Acts chapter 17 now. What I want you to see is that the Apostle Paul, you saw, tried to do the same thing when he got to Mars Hill there, when he came through Athens. He tries to preach about Jesus and the resurrection, and then they said, what? What you talking about, Willis? They said, this guy's just babbling about some stuff we don't understand. And if you're careful in what we just read, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul kind of backs up a little bit. He's like, okay, hold on. I'm in a different world here. I'm going to have to define for these uh, Athenians, I'm going to have to define for them what Christianity is all about from the beginning. Whew. You understand? See, he could not engage that audience the same way that the uh, the apostle peter would have done in acts chapter 2 it's a different audience who has no knowledge of god and no knowledge of god's word and so he has to back up a little bit and he has to define terms now this is what i want to tell you this morning what i want to tell you this morning is that we here in southern california and across this nation we are now an acts chapter 17 audience we're no longer an Acts chapter 2 audience. This is huge. Because we no longer preach to an audience that has an understanding of scripture who knows about God at all. Or the Bible. They don't even understand what, what the Bible teaches about all things. And so, I, I think that God is calling us in this time, in this moment, to be like the Apostle Paul to the Athenians there in Acts chapter 17 and realize that the audience has changed. The audience has changed. And now we have a people who are not going to be cheering us on from the pews, but people who are going to be challenging us from the pews. Not only that, we're going to have ignorant people who don't know anything about the Bible who are easily swayed by every passing wind of doctrine, as it says in Timothy. Because we don't know what we believe, we believe everything. You understand? And so, what we see the Apostle Paul doing in Acts chapter 17 is that he steps back, as it says in Acts 17, 17, and he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them in the synagogue. He reasoned with them in the marketplace. And then he reasons with these philosophers. By the way, when you uh, look at verse 18 there in Acts 17, 18, you'll notice that the group of philosophers who were at Mars Hill were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. 
Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to have a philosophy class here, but let me just give you some cliff notes on this. The Epicurean philosophy is the idea that the meaning of life is pleasure. If you think that the purpose of life is to have fun, if, you, if you're the one that says, YOLO! You know, you only live once, let's try everything, let's have fun. Then you, you have an Epicurean philosophy. You say that the, that the meaning of life is pleasure. The theological concept for that is hedonism, right? It's just pleasure. Life is about, if it feels good, let's do it. If it feels so good, then why is it wrong? Right? So we tell our girlfriends, if loving you is wrong, then I never want to be right. <laughs> dear Maria, dear Maria, if loving you is so wrong, then I never want to be right. <laughs> Yours truly, Simone. That's hedonism, right? It's, it's this idea that, that the meaning of life, the purpose of life is what? It's, it's pleasure. Now, the Stoic philosophy seems to be, to me, uh, in contrast to that, just the position, if you will, of the Epicurean philosophy. The Epicurean philosophy would say pleasure is the meaning. Stoic philosophy would say, no, it's the overcoming of self that is the purpose of life. It's discipline to the T where you rule your own life. So Stoic philosophy is very centered around the individual, the person. You're the meaning of life. It's about you. You're the most important thing in this world. Nothing else, not God, not anything else, not pleasure, but you. It's finding yourself, as we hear a lot today. Stoic philosophy, it's all over uh, our marketing and all the commercials that we see. It's all about you. It's about finding yourself. I really had to take some time to really look, intros introspect myself and find myself. This, is a lot, this has a lot to do with Stoic philosophy. If I only have more discipline to be more healthy, if I only have more discipline to be smarter and so forth, is this idea of overcoming yourself. So it's in this world, it's in this world that the Apostle Paul comes and he says, hold on, you guys have some ideas about what the world is all about. I'm here to present to you the Christian world view. I'm here to tell you that, uh, that the purpose of life is not found in yourself and it's not found in pleasure, it's found in God. And he's going to break it down for them. In fact, it's very popular that when we talk about like a Christian worldview or Christianity as it, uh, it refers to or as, as, uh, as we use it and we contrast it with other worldviews, we say that just like Christianity is often placed under the microscope and often judged and criticized that every worldview has to be put under the microscope and criticized. So sometimes, especially in this deconstruction movement that we're dealing with, is that we put Christianity under the microscope, but we don't put every other worldview under the microscope. That's unfair. If you're going to put Christianity under the microscope, you've got to put every other worldview under the microscope, and let's, say, and let's see how it matches up. How does it make sense? 
And so something that we utilize to contrast and compare all worldviews and religions, by the way, is this idea that every worldview has to reasonably answer these four questions about life. The question of meaning, origin, morality, and destiny. The question of meaning, origin, morality, and destiny. The question of meaning is this idea of what gives life purpose. The question of origin deals with like, where did we come from and why are we here? Is it aliens? <laughs> is it evolution? What happened? The question of morality is the question of how do we determine what's right and wrong and who makes up the rules here? Who says what's right and what's wrong? And then the question of destiny is what happens after we die? And so what, what I want you to notice that, is that although per, perhaps the Apostle Paul was not aware with this way of looking at worldview and contrasting worldviews, he does, the Apostle Paul does in Acts chapter 17, touch on all those four concepts. He tried to preach Jesus and resurrection. They said, oh, what the heck is this babbler talking about? So he steps back and he says, okay, let me start at the beginning. Let's start with the idea of meaning. Then I'm going to tell you about the question of origin. Then we're going to talk about morality. And then we're going to talk about destiny. You see? And so what I want you to see today is how the Apostle Paul answers the question of meaning and the question of origin. Next week, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul answers the question of morality and the question of destiny. So, notice how Christianity engages the primary questions of life. The question of meaning, origin, morality, and destiny. All right, let's talk about this first one. Let's spend some time talking about the question of meaning. The question of what? Meaning. Everybody say meaning. All right, when we're talking about meaning, we're talking about this idea of purpose. Why, why on earth are we here? What is the meaning of life? And have we ever really stopped to think about what is life all about? Now I want to draw your attention back to Acts chapter 17 verse 22 and I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul begins to engage with this idea of meaning. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arabicus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Everybody say religious. Okay. So the question here or the issue here is not, is not atheism, but polytheism. Atheism is when someone doesn't believe in God, but what we have going on here in Athens is poly, many, polytheism, many gods, right? And so we have here um, the Athenians who are very religious. They're worshiping any god that they construct and ever thought about, right? And so I think what the Apostle Paul is, is starting, as he starts his sermon here, he's saying, I see you're very religious. I think what he's saying is this, you're searching. I see you searching. You're looking for meaning. You're looking for gods. Right? And then he says in verse 23, I did my research, he says. I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So I want you to notice just this idea, this concept that Paul brings to us. First is this idea that, that we are religious by nature. As human beings, we're religious by nature. 
We are all seeking for some higher purpose in this life. Now, in the 21st century, we're far too sophisticated to worship idols. Because we know that idol is a man-made figurine and that there's nothing, no power in it or whatever, right? But can I suggest to you that we are indeed polytheists. And we worship and we are seeking for meaning. This is what I mean by that people are very religious by nature. Even atheists, even atheists in their approach to life are seeking meaning and purpose in themselves. Even the atheists worships the idea that they don't worship. Look, David, uh, Paul David Tripp put it like this. He said, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. Adding to that, C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, praise of wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical people, children, flowers, mountains, stamps, beetles, and even sometimes politicians and scholars. People are worshipers by nature. And then I want you to see this. Then Paul says, I see you're very religious. And then he says, you're very ignorant of the thing that you worship. People tend to be ignorant of the things that they are worshiping. And so then he uses this idea that he walked around downtown Athens and that he saw all these temples and all these idols that they worshiped in those days. Now, in those days, when the Apostle Paul says, I walked around and I saw all these images, he's basically talking about, number one, the temple of Demeter. The temple of Demeter was there erected in the city of Athens. And it was a temple dedicated to the goddess of the earth. To the goddess of the what? The earth. See, today we have a movement called the woke movement. And you know who they worship? The environment. And you know what their gospel is? Their gospel is conservation. And we don't call it the temple of Demeter, we just change it, a political movement, and we bow down at the worship of the environment, and we then live our lives for the purpose of conserving rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are worshiping that which is created rather than the creator. See, we're going full circle, aren't we? We're going coming back, right back to how people worshiped in the past. And so he says, I see that you're searching and you're worshiping the environment, the goddess of the earth. When they would go there, what would they worship? The what? The earth. They were worshiping creation rather than the creator. Also there in the city of Athens, there was the temple to Athena. Now, Athena is the goddess of wisdom. The goddess of wisdom 
The goddess of wisdom is this idea that I'm going to find my purpose in how smart I am, how intellectual, how academic, how, uh, uh, my education. I'm going to find my meaning and my purpose in life depending on how academic I can become, how smart I can become. And so I'm going to worship at the altar of wisdom. And there isn't, isn't that also an altar that our culture bows down at? at? Not only at the altar of environmentalism, but don't we bow down at the altar of college and universities? And we say, oh man, uh, uh, let's bow down and let's listen to our prophets, uh, the experts. And let's bow down uh, and let's, let's be there and find our identity and give only value to those who have a degree or those who are very smart, then those people have hold more value than others. Also there, in the city of Athens, there would have been little statues sold everywhere uh, with the image of Zeus. You know who Zeus is? Zeus is the god of force, or the god of power. And those who worshipped Zeus, they were worshipping because they wanted more power. See, if you fast forward to the 21st century, these are the ones who bow down at the altar of fame and followers. I want more followers. I want more influence. I want more power. I want people to follow me and know who I am. That's going to give me purpose. That's going to give me idea. You see what's happening here? Paul is saying, I see that you're very religious. You're seeking after purpose in in uh, creation, you're seeking for purpose in your education. You're seeking for purpose in fame and in power. You understand? But then Paul says, but I'm here to tell you about the unknown God. You don't know this God. You guys with me this morning? Yeah, I need your help. Are you with me this morning? And so there's a sense in which God is saying, what, what altar are you bending knee to? You can only find fulfillment in God. You will never be more fulfilled than when God is glorified in you. The purpose of life is for you to love God and serve people. It's to have a relationship with God. The purpose of life is for you to, through Jesus Christ, come into relationship with the creator of heaven and earth and enjoy this life that he's given you. There's no other purpose than to connect with God, to be with God, to be in relationship with God, and to fulfill his God-given purpose in your life. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Come on, give the Lord a loud hand clap. How are you guys doing? Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? And so what's happening in our culture is that we have this unknown God. We don't know nothing about him. We don't know nothing about this unknown God. And so therefore we go to other places to seek our identity and our purpose and our meaning. And Paul is saying, I see you're searching. Because we are, by our very nature, people who are seeking meaning. But let me tell you that you'll never be most fulfilled until you get more of Jesus in your life. You'll never be more fulfilled than when you start a relationship with God. Look, C.S. Lewis put it like this. Listen carefully. He said this. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We, have ha we are half-hearted creatures 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. That's the problem. Then he goes on to say this. Listen, he says, we as human beings, we settle for far too little. Our problem is that we don't desire enough. We're okay with toilet water instead of the living water of Jesus. We're okay with moldy bread instead of the living bread that is Jesus Christ. We are so used to toilet water and moldy bread that we could never imagine living water and living bread. Come on, somebody should have said praise the Lord. Come on. And so the Apostle Paul deals with this idea of meaning. And he says, your purpose is found in God. I think this is why the Bible says all over the place. It says that, that, that those who don't believe in God are just fools. They're, you're just fools. Because you're trying to find your identity in yourself, in pleasure, in idols. But Paul is saying, let's bring it right back to the creator of heaven and earth. All right. How are you guys doing? Are you sure you're okay? From here, it doesn't look like you're doing okay. You're like. See, you would be scared too, right? <laughs> look, let's just deal with one more of these questions. So the question of meaning and then the question of origin. Let's talk about that for a couple minutes. The question of origin. And so the Apostle Paul, notice, he picks it up in verse 24 now. And notice what he says. This is a message that has to resonate for us in the 21st century. He says, the God who made the world. Everybody say made. made. Yeah, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Mind-blown emoji right here. Mind-blown emoji. Because now he's dealing with the question of what? Origin. Where the heck did we come from? What happened at the beginning? Well, he says right here very clearly, we did not evolve. We've been created by God. Where did everything begin? Well, God made the world and everything in it. Right? And then he says, you're trying to keep God into a temple as if God had a house. God doesn't have a house. See, what we want to do is we want to take this huge God, holy, powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, and then we want to put him in a box and control him. We're going to put you in this house and you stay there. And Paul is saying, you're taking all these gods and everything, you're making little idols and stuff, and then you build these temples as if there were houses for God. Let me tell you about a God that doesn't live in a house and cannot be represented by an image. Because God is far greater than anything that we could ever depict in an image or an idol. This is why the, the commandment says, do not make any, any engraving image of God. Because God is too big, too powerful, too great to ever be depicted by anything made by human hands. And every time you try to make a depiction of God, it's going to fall short of God. That's why the Bible says, sing to him a new song. Because the song that you just wrote got old on God. God can inspire new songs right now. That's how big, how awesome, he powerful he is. Sing to him a new song. 
That's the God I'm preaching about, Paul says. It's not one that you manipulate, that you made up with your own very hands. This is the God who made us. We didn't make him. Whoo, now I'm preaching. Is that okay? Can I preach to you? Now, obviously, this idea that God created, that he's the first mover, stands in direct opposition to our, some of our scientific friends who say that we've evolved. That we're here because of evolution and by chance. We're just, what happened? We're just here by chance. They often say, sometimes evolutionists or atheists would say, you believe in a God who's almighty and who created all this? Well, you believe that we came from absolutely nothing. Have you thought about that? You believe that we came from a rock. I believe that we came from an omnipotent being who put all this into being. What makes more sense, Mr. Atheist? You can't just take a, a, a chair, put it here and say, oh, that just, it's just here by chance. No, the chair tells us there's a chair maker. Anything that's ever created tells us there's a creator. That's using your reason. That's using your what? Logic. Creation tells us that there is a what? A creator. Now, can I just say this? Sometimes we think that Christians and science are against each other. No, not always. As Christians, we're not against science. We're just against really bad science. We're, we're against science that is taught as if it were absolute truth. When it's actually just theories with absolutely no evidence. That's a huge difference, isn't it? When we're just teaching uh, year after year a theory as if it were absolute. And everybody and their mamas, all of the experts tell us that this is what happened at the beginning. When there is absolutely no evidence for it. It's a theory. When we look then at the opposite of that. And we look at the world and we see creation tells us that there is a what? A creator. The difference is this between Christianity and science. And there's some Christian scientists, by the way, it is possible. We look at the same, quote unquote, evidence and we come to different conclusions. For example, we look at Grand Canyon or Mount St. Helens. And a lot of people would say, oh, I am convinced that that explains evolution. Well, how do you know? Were you there? Were you there? No, they weren't. Right? But. A Christian scientist look, sometimes looks at those places, Grand Canyon, Mountain Helens, and they said, no, this is not evidence for evolution. This is evidence for a worldwide flood, just like it says in the Bible. You see? And so it's this idea that we're trying to eliminate a creator God and suppress this truth, as we learned last week in Romans chapter 2, so that when we come to places like Ecclesiastes chapter 12 that says to young people, remember your creator in the days of your youth. They look at you and they say, creator who? I was evolved. You understand? And so Paul steps back and he says, and he says, God made everything. And if God made it, that, get, that fills this space with purpose. Because if we're here only by chance, if we're here by chance, is there any sense in us being, us, being here at all? Nothing can have any real purpose or meaning if we are just here by chance. That is a very poor philosophical starting point for any approach of life. And so we look 
We look at the, a creation and it tells us that there is a God. You're familiar with the idea of the cosmological argument for God? This is the idea that everything that has existed exists with a cause and the universe began. Therefore, God is the cause. That's why we call it the cosmological argument using our reason. If there's creation, there's a creator. Not only that, we also use what we call the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle is this idea that when we look through science at this earth in which we live in, it's been fine-tuned for human beings to live here. That is to say that God created this earth just so that we could live here, perfectly tuned. I could talk to you uh, for many hours about how if just one degree is changed about the environment in which we live in, none of us would be standing right now. We're only here because God created this place for us to live here. This points to the idea that there's an intelligent maker who put all these things to being. God made the world and everything in it. Look, here's another one. God made all ethnicities from one man. Look, I'm going to blow your mind right here. I'm going to blow your mind. Look at verses 25 and 26 now. We're still in Acts 17. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Verse 26. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. Why are we here? It says there that it is God who gave us life and breath and everything else. Everybody take a deep breath. Ready? Okay. Inhale. Exhale. God just gave you that. It's called the breath of life. Given by God. And when he's done with us, he just turns off the air. And we're done. He's God. We're not. He gives everyone life and breath and then everything else. You see how good you look today? You guys look good. I was telling Ivan, man, that, that hoodie looks good, bro. Did your wife dress here or what? It looks good today. You know who gave you that? God. See, if we would understand this concept, we would be filled more with gratitude than with this idea of of uh, complaining. Everything we have given by God and his gracious hand toward us. And then he says, look in verse 20, 26, from one man he made all the nations. Mind blown emoji. From one man he created all nations. In the original Greek, the word nation is ethne, ethnos, ethnicities. From one man, many ethnicities. So, as Christians, we really don't believe in different races. There's not different races. There's just one race, the human race, with different ethnicities. This idea of race extends from the evolutionary theory that says that some humans have evolved, some races have evolved above others, and therefore the belief of supremacy of one race over the other. And that's why we have racism. But the Bible teaches us, nah, -uh. every man and woman has been created in the image of God, created by 
God, one human race. And from that one man, he put the biological makeup within him. So as they procreate, we could have different ethnicities. And the, and the varying looks of, that we have around the, around the world. When did we learn that in science class? It's one man. Right, so your great 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 grandfather was not a monkey. If we continue to tell this generation that they've evolved from monkeys, they're going to behave like them. No, you were created by God with purpose and meaning to have a relationship with Him. You understand? Give the Lord a loud hand clap. How you guys doing? Are you guys okay? All right, let me begin to land this plane, right? So just to help us all out here. So the question of origin. Notice how the Apostle Paul flips what this culture teaches us on its head. It says, we didn't evolve. God created us. We're not different races. We are one race, the human race. And then I'll finish with this. Notice what he says in verse 27 and 28. He's going to say that God's not very far from any of us. Notice in verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from many of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's saying this, he's saying, God is not far from any of us. He's saying, if you just reach out to him, he's going to reach out. To you, he's not hiding. As Pastor Josh was preaching in our Spanish service, he's not hiding from us. In fact, he's the one that's he's looking for us. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was God who went out looking for them. God is not far from many of us. Look, I want to read to you just two quotes that point to this idea of God and this idea that science does not disprove God but points to God. This quote is from Robert Jastrow. He's an American astronomer, physicist, and cosmologist. And notice what he says. At this very moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over that final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who has been sitting there for centuries. What he's saying is this, that we have all these scientists who are trying to find the answers to life outside of God. And at the end, at the end of it, they're really finding absolutely nothing. That tells, they tell us what happens, but not why it happens. And so, as they scale their mountain of ignorance, he calls it. As they scale their mountain of ignorance, and then when they die, one day, when finally it all makes sense, they're going to be greeted by a band of pastors and theologians who have been telling them the whole time, just like Paul, hey, we're created by God. God is the original mover. He's the intelligent designer. He put this into motion. He gives us breath and life and everything else. We're not different races. We're just one race, the human race. And if we would just reach out to God, we can fix this whole thing. I want to invite you to please stand.
I told you we were going to engage our mind, right? We have to teach our church not only how to feel, but also how to what? Think. And being a Christian is not irrational. Uh, irrational. It, it is logical. And as we look at the world around us, as complex as it is, there are foundational thoughts that help us navigate through the difficulty of the world in which we live in. And so my prayer for you is to be a people of both the mind and the heart. Stay tuned next week as we continue to dive into God's Word. And don't forget, check out Pastor Steve's book, The Silent Exodus, available on all digital platforms. Hey man, I'm looking for a church. How can I pay Pastor Steve a visit? Glad you asked. Final Church is located at 15 Spectrum Point Drive, Lake Forest, California. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Oh yeah.